today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, the United States will extradite the Huawei CFO. Does that put the attention on them instead of Canada? Also, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, another summit. This, as a missile base, has been discovered. And the Ontario Premier warned of a recession with a carbon tax. However... It's hard to find an economist that agrees. It's all coming up on today's show. Thanks for listening. Eves Tiebergein is with us. He's a professor of political science at UBC and distinguished fellow at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. We're having Eves on. China is demanding that the U.S. withdraw the request uh, for Canada to extradite the uh, Huawei CFO. Uh, this after, it seems the focus is changing now, after the U.S. has announced that uh, or... or we're hearing rumblings of they are going to move forward with the extradition of the Huawei CFO. Eves is with us now. Eves, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good morning, Scott. Pleasure being here. So how has this story changed in the last 24 hours? Uh, well, that part of the story is not new, right? I mean, uh, there's a deadline of January 30th for the U.S. to send their extradition file, but, you know, it was always assumed that they would, right? Because they would lose face otherwise, having gone to that much trouble. So, I mean, while it, it is news, it's not a surprise at all, right? The more interesting part would be the next 30 days. So February, uh, by the process of extradition, Canada will have 30 days, first decision of court, and then Minister of Justice, uh, to decide whether uh, there is authorization to proceed, uh, you know, uh, authority to proceed with the, the whole uh, legal process. Uh, so that's where there is a decision that will have to be made by the court and by the Minister of Justice on whether the bar of dual criminality is reached. That is whether uh, what is um, at stake here is a crime both on the U.S. and Canadian law. Uh, if uh, there's no surprise that the United States are going to move through with this, even though the Globe and Mail is now uh, reporting that, that 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 is the direction that they're confirmed to be going in, although uh, I'm not sure we've heard from them on that. Um, if we're to assume that that was going to happen, wouldn't we just assume that after the extradition hearing, she would be gone, uh, sent to the United States as well, simply because, the, you know, the, the couple of things involved, which is, is her life going to be in danger? I mean, it, there doesn't seem to be any red flags uh, to suggest that she would not be extradited. Is that is that accurate? Well, no, there's one red flag, which is the requirement of dual criminality. So... Uh, the, the the issue being uh, that that's being uh, obs- you know that's being claimed here has to be a crime uh, on the both uh, U.S. and Canadian law, and yet there is a major difference, which is because here we're not talking of a normal civil law criminal law situation, we're talking of a violation of U.S. sanctions on Iran, and so the the sanction law by Canada or by the U.S. are different, and in particular in Canada we normally don't go after third. Uh, country national for deeds not happening in Canada, or in this case, the U.S. And in this case, the deeds being reproached uh, happened in Hong Kong, uh, and it was a Chinese national. So there is one question here for the courts to clear on whether, uh, you know, that can still apply under Canadian law, because it has to be a crime under both uh, jurisdictions. It's also quite unusual. I don't, don't think we have had cases like this of U.S. sanctions, uh, sanctions law on Iran, you know, going through Canadian courts. So there's still a bit of uh, decision here for the courts to make. Is that a Hail Mary? 
I mean, you know, I understand what you're saying, but um, what's in percentage wise, what's the chance of her not being extradited? <laughs> That's very hard to guess, right? That this is really a legal process, but you know, for the court to make would you say okay? Let me make it. Let me let me make it simpler. Yeah. Would you say there's more than a fifty fifty chance she will be extradited? Yeah. You know, I, like I, you know, from what I've been hearing, and so on and so forth, and just as you just as you said, if they're going to file these charges and want us to detain her in Canada, they're not going to not extradite her. Meaning, the U.S. is not going to extradite her. So, is there any reason to believe that now they have decided that they will extradite her, or that's what we're hearing, uh, that she won't be extradited? Yeah, no. Actually, the, I would question the premise. Right? I think uh, the decision to arrest was just. Well, we have a request from the U.S. We have so many cases like this all the time. So we first arrest and then we send it to the court and the court will review. So the court still has quite a bit of leeway here. And because it's such an unusual case, we've never had a case like this, the court could well say, oh, this is about sanctions on Iran and, and our law in Canada is different. And actually it doesn't work here. So there is a room for that, you know, the so-called dual criminality. The other aspect would be because of the remarks by President Trump that he could use this in trade negotiations as leverage, then, of course, the defense side can say this is a political case. And uh, Trump said he could intervene anytime. That, that will be used by the defense side. So, you know, never know. In court, there is an X percent chance that the court could say it doesn't work on the Canadian law. Uh, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with, uh, with the, the issue on Trump and, and bringing it up in a trade negotiation as leverage. That's, that, that's, not, that's certainly not going to work in the United States' favor at all. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure that at the end of the day, um, you know, when there's a treaty and it involves allies that, um, you know, once an extradition treaty has, has been put in place, if someone's life is not in danger or they're being persecuted in any way, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's, there's, there's more than a chance that she will be extradited. That's that. That's just what I'm hearing. Is that? Do you feel that there is more of a chance that she would be extradited, and a, and a chance, a slight chance that she might not be? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's therefore I would not say it's hundred percent sure she will. Be. Right. Uh, right. You know, maybe it's eighty twenty or seventy thirty. Right. Uh, and then in addition, we know that the clock is ticking in U.S. China talks, right, and mm-hmm. until March first. Uh, and there's no no question that China will bring it up, that, you know, it will be maybe Xi Jinping and, and Trump in person. And China will kind of say to the U.S., you know, if you want a huge deal that's being negotiated, you're going to have to take action here because we see this as extraterritorial application of U.S. sanction law on Iran. It's not international law. We cannot accept this. This was a trick. And so, uh, you know, that we're not done with all that. So there is a U.S. wild card as well. Uh, so you're calling it a trick? Well, in, you know, in some ways, it was because it's the first time that the U.S. arrests an executive of a company on on uh, the violation, potential violation of U.S. sanctions on Iran, which is very unusual. They're breaking new ground, right? They have never done this. They have fined many companies before, like French Bank, BHP, Paribas, billions of dollars. Uh, the French were furious at the time. They call it extraterritorial at the time already. Uh, you know, so this is unusual ground, right? Because mm-hmm. it's about sanctions. It's not about just law. And sanctions are foreign policy. Um, and, and I guess also the Chinese didn't see it coming. 
nobody in China predicted that first the prosecutors in the U.S. would go to the point of arresting, and second, do it through a third country. So this is it caught the Chinese by surprise. There's no question. Why is uh, why has China not been focusing on the U.S. earlier? Uh, many have said they've been bullying up Canada instead of focusing focusing on where this has originated, which was the United States. Now that the United States, we're hearing rumor that they're going to go through with this. Now they seem to be focusing on the U.S. Why didn't they do that first? And because because obviously China must know what the relationship is between Canada and the United States. So what good is it going to do to kick China, to kick Canada around? You know, a treaty's a treaty. A treaty. Right. Um, I guess they were, you know, there's two reasons for this. The one, the literal, and then a the bigger one. The literal one is that since the person is in Canada, among in Canada, they, they go after the person where the person is, right? So it's kind of a literal. Uh, yeah, but they're not detaining United States citizens, they're detaining Canadians. Yeah, well, because, you know, uh, if you look at the extradition, uh, legal process in Canada. There is ultimately uh, a role for the Minister of Justice. So there is uh, leeway. You know, in the books, there is leeway for the minister to have an evaluation. Uh, so there is that. But the bigger reason is that they are deep in negotiation of a trade with the U.S. And so they are trying to protect that space. They still have, uh, you know, until March 1st to, to go that, to, to finish that. So they're protecting that space while showing their anger on the side <laughs> at Canada. But if she does get extradited, then all the anger will go to the U.S., right? Uh, Canada as well, but the U.S. will be uh, in, the, in the target line. What kind of pressure is on China, both domestic and foreign, to release the detainees there? Well, we know there is a whole foreign policy process organized by the prime minister here and the foreign minister. You know, about 20 countries have been contacted at the highest level. Some have uh, issued declarations of sympathy. Then there has been this uh, petition by former diplomats from uh, seven countries and uh, academics. Uh, so there is that pressure. And then presumably the U.S. has also discussed it with the Chinese although we hear less uh, about it, but it could be uh, in, a, you know, in non-public channels. So there is that kind of pressure. Um, you know, I hope it works. Uh, what we know about China in general is that this is hard, right? Because you know, if they buckled now, they will lose face at home. So that if we just look at their record over time, this is usually not their pattern. Uh, they usually buckle more on, as part of a deal or part of a mutual recognition of what happened. Uh, but there is some significant pressure, yes. How much damage has China received from a public relations standpoint? Your thought on the ambassador and the Chinese ambassador to Canada and, and what he had to say in front of the press the other day and, and you know, in, in sort threatening Canada if they, excuse me, <clears throat> didn't allow the, uh, the use of Huawei's 5G network. Uh, how, how do you think that's received here and, and, and does China understand that? Yeah, no, it's, it's not well received, of course, right? But as far as I, you know, I thought it was even coverage in the globe. That second piece about uh, the adoption of Huawei, uh, China has walked it back, right? They said, uh, you know, the day after there was an official statement from Beijing saying, uh, you know, it's not like there will be punishment anymore. We think we have the better uh, market case, right? So they they did walk back that piece. Uh, they didn't walk back the the piece about Hmong and about. Uh, uh, you know, the anger that China feels about her arrest. 
But yes, uh, there have been statements used by China that that uh, that don't work in the Canadian context that cannot be accepted by Canadians. So those are not uh, those are not so good. Yeah. Eves, if, in fact, uh, the Huawei CFO is extradited to the United States, what happens then? What happens to the Canadians that are detained there? What happens to Robert Schellenberg anymore on his death sentence? Well, so there's so many uh, steps, right, coming forward that, you know, because the extradition would take months. After the 30-day, you know, in February, uh, the decision whether the case can proceed, after that, there will be a court hearings, decisions, and then appeals, etc. So that can take years, right? So we don't we don't necessarily have a fast extradition. But leaving that aside, on the Schellenberg case, I you know there's still two levels you know to uh, of appeals. So first, normally he's going to go to the high court, assuming Schellenberg is appealing, and I assume he would, and then he's going to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, and the Supreme Court is a mandatory review in China. And the record has been that they have squashed quite a few death penalties in recent years. In fact, they have been under instructions to reduce the use of the death penalty. So I remain hopeful that with the multiple level, that death penalty will not hold. Uh, in any cases, again, it's going to be quite a slow process. But I believe that will be independent. That is, yes, at this particular moment uh, last week, they used the, the moment to bring journalists and to make a show and uh, you know, kind of make it a public, uh, a public diplomacy fear show. But uh, I think the, the case will go back into a quiet process and may, uh, you know, has room for different sentences at the end. Uh, on the other two, they are more directly linked. And, um, yeah, it's hard to predict what China will do, but... Uh, yeah, it's Are you worried that if this case now, it seems now that this case, the, the attention is moving to the U.S. and away from Canada, if that in fact happens and they continue with their extradition process and the story moves more to the U.S., are, are we afraid that this these cases will just be shoved to the back burner? Oh, they won't because Canada will never let it happen, right? Canada is the record to really stand for people that are, uh, you know, that, that have been put in a in uh, legal processes that we don't accept, right? Um, but usually, so what we have seen in the past, we have seen cases of release and so-called clemency, but usually as part of a de-escalation package, right? So I think that's what we want to find a, a way toward, one way or the other. How does Canada and China mend the relationship moving forward? Uh, again, assuming that this goes through and, and, and the CFO is extradited, as you said, that's a long process. What does Canada and China do in the, nec- in the meantime? Well, so we have to remember, Canada, China is huge, right? It's in every file that we, that we are interested in globally, China is there. No, you go to G20, well, you have to work with China. You, you want to do UN peacekeeping, China is at the heart of it. And in fact, they, they, they're very positive, very helpful. You want to do climate change, with Canada, China is the, currently one of the countries trying to do the most, right? So, uh, we, you know, China is, is like the U.S. It's one of those global powers that's unavoidable. It's huge. It's not going anywhere. So we have to find, we're going to have to find a way mutually to, um, to work with each other on other files, right? And then gradually uh, find a way to have better mutual understanding. I think we're still in that early stage of the process where each side feels so aggrieved by the other, and there is great misunderstanding. Or you know, the two sides 
see the story as a completely different one, as if they're on different planets. So that gap of understanding and narratives will have to be bridged at some point. Eves Tiberguin has been with us, professor of political science at the University of British Columbia and distinguished fellow at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. Eves, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Donald Trump talking uh, about another summit possibly with Kim Jong-un. This as a new secret missile headquarters has been uncovered through surveillance of North Korea. To find out more about all of this, Benoit Hardy-Chartran is with us, Senior Research Associate, Global Security and Politics with CIGI, and is with us now. Benoit, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. My pleasure. Uh, when Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump met at their, uh, at their summit way back when, uh, Donald Trump said the world was safe and that uh, North Korea was on its way to denuclearizing. Uh, what has happened? Have we made any progress there? Well, listen, it was very premature for Donald Trump to make such an assertion. He was probably the only person, even within the uh, U.S. administration, who thought that uh, the threat was over. None of... And the expert watchers community uh, thought that uh, there was going to be any progress anytime soon. We've seen North Korea do uh, give these kinds of commitments before in the past. And frankly, uh, although the Singapore summit uh, seemed to go well and there seemed to be a decent rapport between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, there really was no clear commitment on the part of the North Koreans. There was no... Uh, there was no timeline that was established between the two between the two sides. So the fact that we now find ourselves what seven, eight months, well, seven months after the fact that we haven't seen any real progress on denuclearization, the fact that we haven't seen real concessions on the part of the North Koreans should not be uh, surprising to any any observer. So uh, it doesn't appear that anything has really changed. Where is North Korea post-summit? I mean, is there still a warm and fuzzy feeling here? Yes, well, here's uh, what's going on with North Korea. What North Korea was really trying to get uh, with the uh, the summit, and what it's been trying to get for a while, actually, is more than anything a lifting of the the sanctions that that it was subjugated to for a few years, but uh, these sanctions started to be uh, very pressing, very strict, especially in 2017. It was really feeling the heat internationally. It was also quite worried in 2017 that the uh, the Americans, the, the Donald Trump administration, was, was going to uh, to to order strikes on North Korea. So by sitting down with Donald Trump and by showing, reaching out to the Americans, to South Korea as well. It allowed um, Kim Jong-un to breathe a little more easily since, uh, since June of last year. And the reality is uh, we have seen, there's a lot of indications showing that there is a lot less pressure on North Korea. We have seen uh, more trade between the Chinese and North Koreans since the June summit. We have seen a major rapprochement as well between South Korea and North Korea. And the South Korean administration is also calling for lifting of sanctions. And all that to say, to show that although Kim Jong-un may not be exactly where he wants right now, he's in, he's in a much better situation now than he was uh, before the summit, and especially that he was in 2017. So frankly, if you take that all into account, he doesn't have that 
much incentive for the time being to go any further uh, on the on the road uh, to towards that potential denuclearization. So enough progress has been made, sanctions eased. That this is this obviously has slowed the rhetoric from Kim Jong Un and and where he was with it seemed testing missiles every month or so. Yes. Um, however, I need to point out uh, what we have seen is uh, a little bit of a relenting of international pressure on Kim Jong-un. However, the sanctions have not been lifted uh, officially yet. Right. There have been calls on many sides, on the side of the Chinese, on the side of the South Koreans, and obviously the North Koreans, for uh, for a lifting of the sanctions. Um, and there's this result in just simply less pressure. We have seen more opening of the borders for trade with China, as, as I was mentioning earlier. And that has led to uh, a Kim Jong-un, frankly, that right now feels more comfortable. And that has continued the generally positive rhetoric. Although we have seen in the last few months uh, a sort of uh, slight uptick in tensions between uh, Washington and Pyongyang, because uh, Washington was getting a little bit antsy at the lack of progress on the part of, North, of the North Koreans, uh, the reality is we're still seeing, at least rhetorically, at least in the official discourse in Pyongyang, a, uh, we're seeing a maintenance of this kind of more positive line that we have seen Kim Jong-un adopt since the beginning of 2018, about a year ago. So how does the discovery of this missile base, how does this change the discussion? Uh, is this on the table? Is this part of this discussion? So here's the thing about the uh, the announcements or the the potential discovery of new missile sites. Although um, it's obviously it might be seen as a sort of uh, uh, walking back from uh, North Korea, walking back from its prior commitments or from the spirit of the Singapore summit. The reality is, so far there has been no agreement between the North Koreans and the Americans when it comes to missile activity in North Korea. Uh, the only agreement, if you read the, the very short uh, Singapore declaration, they're talking about uh, the, the attainment of peace on the Korean peninsula. They're talking about a, uh, an eventual denuclearization of the Korean peninsula. But there's no mention of missiles. Nothing has been agreed so far on any missiles. And uh, so basically it shouldn't surprise anyone to see, this, uh, to see that North Korea is continuing uh, its work on its missile capabilities. It has no reason for the time being to uh, to change, to, to deviate from that road. It still sees the Americans uh, and the United States and the rest of the international community, especially the Japanese, as a threat to its own interests. So for the time being, there's no real incentive for it to uh, to do anything about its missiles, to, uh, to dismantle its missile arsenal, which is extremely important as far as uh, its deterrence posture against the United States. What do we know about this site uh, that has been spotted? Uh, how big a threat is this? W- what's the significance of it? Well, there's, it's one of many, many missile sites in North Korea. So the, the, the last one that was discovered is not necessarily uh, bigger or qualitatively any different from the others, but it's just uh, one of an array of multiple missile sites all over North Korea, which frankly, in the, in the case of a potential conflict, or in the case of an agreement on dismantlement of North Korean missiles, is going to cause a problem. Because although we do, and when we say we, I'm talking mostly about not only the expert community, but also the intelligence community in the United States and in other countries, including in the region here in Japan, 
we we have an idea of where these these missile sites are located, but not we can't be sure a hundred percent. Which obviously, in the case of a dismantlement of the case, only in the case of a potential uh, agreement, is going to make uh, this uh, dismantlement very very difficult. We already have in the past. There's been a lot of mistrust between North Korea and the United States. If the North Koreans were going to come forward with with a declaration of their of their assets, which is which is what Washington has been hoping for, there's no telling that North Korea uh, would be completely straightforward or would be uh, forthcoming in the in the re- in revealing all of its assets. So the fact that now we are being more aware of all of these uh, missile sites is just adds to I think the. Uh, the future of how complex future negotiations are going to be and how fraught these negotiations are likely to be because of this very wide array of not only nuclear but also missile assets that uh, Pyongyang possesses. How does North Korea react to the fact that this has now been discovered? Do they care? Well, so far, well, they, they, they do care, obviously, uh, but they are aware, however, that the United States uh, are on that satellites and that the intelligence community of the United States has already a decent, not full, but a decent um, awareness and, uh, and information about where the, their assets and their bases are. And therefore, it's probably not going to react um, publicly about this. But anyway, any time there is a report, any time there is a discovery of their uh, of their missile sites, it's only going to be further incentive for them to uh, try to be more, uh, more perhaps more stealthy about the further further development of their of their missile capabilities. Donald Trump talking about getting together again with Kim Jong Un. Is this just all coincidence? The timing? Uh, no, they've been talking about a future, a second meeting for the last few months already. We know that Donald Trump itself has seen has seen for the last few months, ever since Singapore, to be uh, probably the only person within his administration to remain optimistic um, about uh, about the situation on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, now, in the last few months, we've really been uh, working hard. The, the Trump has ordered uh, his administration to work towards the establishment. And the scheduling of a second uh, of a second uh, summit, because he knows that uh, for the time being, in order to kind of reinvigorate uh, the, the 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 potential war, um, negotiations towards denuclearization, there needs to be another summit. We know how uh, Donald Trump values face-to-face diplomacy, uh, face-to-face meeting. We have seen how uh, he has used those to try to obtain uh, concessions or obtain. Um, other things that he wanted in other relationships with other leaders in the region, in Asia, uh, including with Xi Jinping, the leader of China. And therefore, he sees uh, likely uh, the, the, the scheduling of a second uh, summit in February of this year, like a, the only way uh, for him to try to bring this, uh, these negotiations forward, which, although he has remained uh, optimistic about, as we, he, he's very conscious in the last few months, uh, these negotiations have hit, hit some, a few road bumps. And, uh, and that, you know, the road ahead is not exactly clear, clear at the moment. So um, he's probably very, very happy and still optimistic about this second step. So this is pretty much a continuation where the last one left off, that being introduction, get to know this. Where do we go from here? Well, exactly. And the thing is, we have to remember, these summits, this is not where the real yeah. working details, where the details are being worked out between the leaders. They're talking, they're really trying to... Uh, bring some more, uh, you know, some more weight to uh, 
uh, to what has been going on so far. They're trying to reinvigorate the, the process. But the real substantial negotiations are going to be uh, conducted between the real uh, nego- uh, nuclear negotiators, negotiators on both sides, including Stephen Deegan of the United States. Uh, they are the people who will really bring the process forward. The leaders' meeting is only really about uh, trying to trying to make it go forward when it has, because of the, the stalling that we have seen in the last few months. How does the rest of the world interpret this summit? What's going on? And Donald Trump meeting with uh, Kim Jong-un again. Well, I think there's quite a bit of, of perplexity. Uh, and I'm talking mostly about the region, given that I'm based here in Japan. There is quite a bit of perplexity as far as what is the, what is the real, well, we know what the, what the end game is, but what is the process going to be going forward? We're not sure, um, especially here in Japan, what is the American strategy? We have seen a lot of incoherence in the last year. We have seen even since the Trump, uh, since the Trump King summit in June, uh, we have seen a lot of conflicting declarations on the part of the Americans. Uh, within the Trump administration, we saw contradictions between Trump and uh, his Secretary of State. Uh, well, when it was Tillerson, especially, it's been a little bit better since Pompeo has been uh, Secretary of State. Uh, but frankly, what we see now is just, as I mentioned, a, a, a lot of uncertainty. This uncertainty, frankly, has been there ever since Trump was elected in 2016. And uh, since then, we haven't seen anything on the part of the Trump administration that has alleviated the concerns of, of, uh, of all the actors of the region who are, frankly, not very optimistic, uh, quite the contrary, you know, contrary to what Trump has been saying and showing uh, in, Korea, in South Korea and especially here in Japan and in China. I don't think there's a lot of optimism towards a, a real long-term um, alleviation of, of, of tensions between the two, the two countries, between Pyongyang and Washington. Benoit, I cannot let you go uh, without asking you uh, about to comment on the situation with Canada and China in regard to the Huawei CFO uh, being detained in Vancouver in December and then the subsequent detainment of Canadians since then, one uh, uh, that was obviously connect, uh, convicted of a, dr- uh, of a drug trafficking charge, now sentenced to death. It now appears the U.S. is going to go through with their extradition process. Uh, the focus seems of, uh, for China to be focused now on the United States as opposed to Canada. But how much of this scenario has played out uh, in your part of the world? Is this news at all? No, absolutely. It is big news here. Of course, the, the fact that the, uh, the Chinese have held uh, two Canadian uh, hostages, because that's rea- really what they have been. We're talking about Michael Stavor and Michael Kovrig. Um, it has been quite a big news here in Japan, because we know that Japan and China have been locked in a, a relatively tense relationship for quite a long time now. Uh, there's a lot of wariness here in Japan about uh, this growing power and assertiveness of China and seeing China um, acting the way that it does, the way that it did in response to the arrest of uh, Meng, the CFO of Huawei, is not going to lessen any of the jitters that are felt here in Japan. Uh, China, frankly, with the arrest of these two of these two uh, Canadian expats in China, has not done anything that is going to uh, lessen the fears that were already here in the region, and certainly not those that were uh, that we the awareness that some people felt in Canada as well. It's going to pour cold water as well on the uh, potential free trade agreement that has been talked about in the last few years between uh, Canada and China. Uh, I think this current um, 
there's still this path between uh, China and, and Canada, even if China was going to release uh, at some point the two, uh, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, it's not going to, um, we're not going to see a real um, rapprochement between uh, China and Canada. This, has, this is going to have long-term consequences. Um, the way that it's been acting in a much more assertive, muscular fashion is going, I think, to uh, make a lot of countries more wary of engaging uh, in, on certain fronts with China. Has China done itself any favors by positioning itself this way, especially when it is trying to uh, maneuver and position itself as a world leader in, in technology? Um, well, I would say no. It certainly hasn't done itself any favor. It's not the only, uh, I would say, sir, uh, the only measure that it has taken in the last few months that is going to uh, it won't hurt it, its image. Also, in the last few months, as you are probably aware, it arrested the head of Interpol, uh, mm-hmm. who was a Chinese uh, Chinese citizen who, who was based in Europe and who is now currently being detained in China. That's not going to help uh, Chinese efforts to have more of its citizens to head international organizations. Um, so certainly the, these, uh, these actions that we've seen in the last few months um, are not making uh, the world, I would say, more... Um, how can I say that? Like open or embrace uh, this new assertiveness, or this new this new greater role of China in the world community. Uh, they are certainly being more uh, more assertive, and they're trying by doing what they have done with Canada to uh, simply um, you know try to get their way, uh, try to try to strong arm other countries to do things that are in their they're in their interest. But that is not going to uh, make the world world more. Uh, more uh, more open to Chinese assertiveness and Chinese role, for sure. Benoit Hardy-Chartrand has been with us, Senior Research Associate, Global Security and Politics with CIGI, and is speaking with us from Japan. Benoit, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Ontario Premier said at an event yesterday he warned of a recession with a carbon tax in place. Uh, Mr. Ford went on to say you can be uh, you can be for a carbon tax or you can be for manufacturing jobs, but you can't be for both. Uh, he says, I'm here today to ring the warning bell that the risk of a carbon tax recession is very, very real, he told the Economic Club of Canada. To which I'm wondering if there's any of those sitting in the seats at the Economic Club of Canada, Canada that are saying, well, the last recession was in 2008, so we're pretty much uh, we're on track for another one anyway, uh, whether there's a carbon tax or not, because that's just a, cyc- a cyclical uh, way of, of the economy over the course of a decade. Here's what the Premier had to say. I can tell you that a carbon tax will be a total economic disaster, not only for our province, but for our entire country. And there are already economic warning signs on the horizon. So uh, maybe another way to look at it, and there are economic warning signs on the horizon, because as I mentioned, we've, you know, the last one was in 2008. So it's pretty safe to say that one day we're going to get another one. And um, so I I guess in that respect, he is correct. But um, would that have happened anyway? I would suspect that it would have. Uh, Another question to ask, perhaps, is, is this the the, maybe what he's alluding to? Is this the right time to be doing this? Is there ever a right time? 
because of a looming recession and the fact, as he mentioned, the red flags are already starting to show. Let's bring in Brendan Frank, Research Associate, Canada Ecofiscal Commission, and with us now. Brendan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me, Scott. What is Canada Ecofiscal Commission? So the Ecofiscal Commission is a group of independent, policy-minded economists uh, the organization formed in 2014. Uh, we're actually ending this year. We have a limited mandate. But we really wanted to push the discussion forward on policies that make sense for both the environment and the economy. Um, and a price on carbon is one of those policies. So what are your thoughts on uh, what the uh, Premier had to say in regard to uh, this will put us into a recession? So I think we should put the, the claim in context first. Um, so what is a recession? It is two quarters of negative economic growth, two consecutive quarters. Mm-hmm. It is a very, very serious economic event. Um, and claims like this require evidence. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And the Premier has made a pretty extraordinary claim. Uh, but he provided no evidence to support that claim. And in fact, there is there's evidence to the contrary. There are several studies that suggest that the impact of a $20 carbon tax on the Canadian economy would be very modest. Um, What about the fact that we're probably heading for a recession anyway, since the last one was in 2008, and these things seem to be cyclical? Well, there there are certainly some warning signs on the horizon, uh, but a, a carbon tax is not one of them. Uh, The Ecofiscal Commission's analysis, our analysis shows that the overall cost of of this policy is about 0.1% of GDP, so very modest. Uh, People are wondering how this could possibly be if you increase the price of something. How can, um, you know, how can that be not harder on the average Joe? You want to touch on that? What are we missing here? So it's important to remember that the carbon price is a a two-step policy. There's the uh, additional couple of cents that you'll pay at the pump, for instance. Uh, So the price of some carbon-intensive goods will increase. But the government's not just lighting those revenues on fire. They are returning it to households to restore their purchasing power. And, in fact, 80% of households... uh, that will fall under the federal carbon tax, which includes Ontarians, will be better off financially than they would be without the policy. What about the 20%? Who, who does that, what, what makes up that 20%? So the 20% is the, uh, the highest income earners, mm-hmm. um, and they will be receiving a, uh, a rebate as well. But high-income households tend to consume more carbon than low-income households, so the rebate may not entirely offset their additional costs. So how does this work if the majority of the money is giving back? Because we hear that, you know, there's going to be investment in in other technologies, which, you know, again, those of us that have have lived through um, um, the Kathleen Wynne government and what was promised there and how much it has uh, driven costs up, um, you can understand why people are skeptical of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's important to remember that not all environmental policies are created equal. Hmm. The, the advantage of a carbon price is that it is a minimalist 
way of the government intervening to address climate change, which is a very serious problem. We can either use market-based policies like carbon pricing to reduce emissions, or we can use costlier regulations. For instance, we could mandate that this factory installs this piece of equipment to reduce its emissions. Uh, but carbon pricing is it's low cost and it's, it's flexible and it's unintrusive in a way that perhaps some of the previous uh, environmental policies in Ontario hadn't been. Is it more transparent? Absolutely, and that's actually part of why it's so yeah. difficult to, to implement, right? People see exactly what it costs them. Uh, regulations, on the other hand, the costs are higher, but they're often hidden. They're, and they're, there is an economic cost to them, too. Um, but it's not, as, it's not as tangible or direct to the, the ordinary household. If, um, if the majority of this money is handed back, how does this spur private investment in clean energy technologies? So we can look at uh, British Columbia for a very good example of how it has uh, spurred that type of innovation. British Columbia has had a carbon tax for over 10 years. Um, they're forecast to lead Canada, Canadian provinces in economic growth this year. And we can see... Uh, how the carbon price has influenced innovation uh, in British Columbia. Just uh, one example, uh, the average fuel economy, the fuel economy of the average car in British Columbia is 4% better than it would be, 4% better than it would have been without the carbon tax. How does that work? Well, when you increase the price of something, uh, you you're increasing the demand for alternatives. So if the price of gas goes up, people generally like to drive more fuel-efficient cars so they can save money on gasoline. It's the same principle that we use all the time in our daily lives. If the price of beef goes up, you'll switch to fish. If the price of uh, a car goes up, you'll take public transit. Brandon Frank is with us, Research Associate, Canada Ecofiscal Commission, talking about the Premier saying yesterday that a recession will come if a carbon tax is put in place. Economists appear to disagree. Brendan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.